you, uh, some of us know this because we've experienced it. If you were to go down, if you decided tomorrow, I'm going to go down to the bank and apply for a loan. Uh, they, don't, they don't just hand you money, right? You've you got to go through a fairly uh, significant process. The first thing the bank wants to do, if you go down and ask for money, they're going to establish your identity, right? They're going to ask not only for your driver's license, but also for your social security number. They're going to want a recent utility bill to establish residence. They're going to want bank statements, proof of income, proof of employment. They're going to run your credit score. The reason for that is the bank wants to know, am I legit? Before they commit to give me their money, before they commit to entrust me to pay it back, they need to know if I am who I say I am and if I have the ability to pay it back. They're going to look over all the evidence before they make that decision. They want to know about me. Now, y'all, as we've been walking through this letter, 1 John, there, there's a not-so-subtle point that the Apostle John has been making all throughout. He's been very careful to establish the marks of true Christian identity. Y'all, anybody can say, I'm a Christian. But for John, that's not where the bar is set. In fact, one of the reasons John writes this letter is to combat false teachers who were claiming to be Christians when it was obvious from their teaching and their behavior that they weren't. And so just saying it wasn't enough for John. John wants to see the evidence here. And in a very gracious way, but in a very sharp way, John gives us three main evidences or fruits of true Christianity. So if I say I belong to Jesus, John says, okay, Kyle, there need to be three things present in your life, in his perspective, three things that show it forth, the evidence. First is the truth of the gospel. And that should go without saying. But a Christian is a person who holds confessionally to the truth about Jesus, that he is the Son of God who died for our sins, who rose again from the grave, and so on. There is no Christianity apart from these truths. And so our commitment to the truth is a given. That's first for John. Second, John says, is our obedience to Christ. He also calls it the practice of righteousness. We hold to the truth, of course, yes, but the truth is transforming us. We don't live as we used to live. We're no longer defined by our sins, but we are now born of God. We preached on this last week, the practice of righteousness. And then thirdly, which will be our focus for today, a Christian is someone who abides in love. Truth, righteousness, and love. These are the three qualities John sets forth as the evidence of genuine faith. And what John is careful to show us also is that these three things don't exist apart from each other. You can't parcel them out they're interwoven. They belong together. So to trust in Jesus, to confess the truth of the gospel, that's the truth portion, always, John says, results in new life. We receive a new life. Not just a commitment to true beliefs, but a new heart. The indwelling grace of the Holy Spirit now belongs to those who trust Jesus. And this produces righteous behavior and it produces love a love that characterizes that our faith belongs to Jesus. And so here today, right in the middle of chapter 3, the focus is on Christian love. That's the primary 
thrust of this text. But we see clearly now how all of these three uh, threads are woven in. All the qualities tie in together. We actually see it very plainly in verse 10. So look at verse 10. That's our first verse. We're going to look at 10 through 18 all together this morning. But only in verse 10 we see the connections. By this, John says, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The truth is straight and clear, John says. It's obvious. It's evident, your, your translation might say it. It's, it's righteousness and love, he says, which are the marks of genuine faith. Now, just for the sake of today, let's, cons let's consider that last phrase in verse 10. The one who does not love his brother, John says, is not of God. And what John has specifically in mind here is a love for our fellow Christians. That's what the word brother or sister means in context here. Now, as Christians, we're called to love everybody. We're called to love everybody. Friends and enemies both, right? But there's a special category in view right here. That when we come to faith in Jesus, we now are adopted into God's family. We become, the Bible says, God's very children. And that means if we're all God's children by faith, those of us who trust Christ become brothers and sisters, one of another. We are, the Scripture says, the household of God. We are the church, the family of God. And here in this new divine family, we're called to exhibit a certain kind of love, an affection, a treatment of each other that reflects God Himself. His heart for us now becomes our heart for one another. Jesus is the one who spoke this most clearly and famously. This is a scripture we come back to fairly often here. John chapter 13, in the gospel, Jesus with His disciples says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, Jesus says, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus speaks to the evidence here. How will people know we're really Christians? By our love. So for John and certainly for Jesus, Christian love is not an elective course. This is fundamental. This is core stuff. And in fact, we see it again in 1 John 3. Now look at 1 John 3, verse 11. John comes back to this, and he's not ambiguous about it. He says, this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now that's interesting here, because he's mentioned this multiple times now. The message we've heard from the beginning is to love each other. Y'all, right alongside. This means that when the, these Christians first heard the gospel of Jesus, right there alongside the message of God's grace and love, salvation, all of it, right there baked into the message of the cross and resurrection is, as Jesus has loved us, we ought also to love one another. Those weren't separate messages. That wasn't plan A and plan B somehow. It was all one thing brought to bear on these Christians when they first came to the Lord. Now, John could leave us right there. He could stop in verse 11. He's given us the command. It's not something new. They've already known it. He could move on to the next topic in the letter. But he doesn't. 
and y'all, I'm especially glad for me in this case, maybe for you too, that John doesn't use that word love with ambiguity. He doesn't leave it up to our own interpretation. And I think maybe especially for us, we need this to be more specific, more grounded. Because y'all, I know this for a fact, because it's true of me. Most people, we consider ourselves very loving. If you were to ask, and I, I, I think this is true, if we were to poll a million people, do you consider yourself a loving person? Almost 100%, without even hesitating, would say, yeah, of course. I'm a very loving person. But we have to reckon right here with how the Scripture defines that term, which means we have to reckon with how God defines love. God doesn't define love in quite the way that we typically do. Our version of love, y'all, frankly, is much lower and more fickle and more self-driven than God's is. And so John, in his typical fashion, is going to give us a contrast here. He's going to show us one side and the other and how distinct they are from each other. He's going to show us the dark side of our human nature before he brings us back to the light of God's nature revealed in Jesus Christ. And John does this in a really fascinating way. Y'all, John is going to invoke the memory right here of one of the most notorious people in human history, not just in the Bible, but across the world, Cain. You probably don't think about Cain a whole lot, except maybe in Sunday school. But way back in Genesis 4, we see Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, the brother of Abel, John is going to bring that story back to bear for us and showing us the contrast here that he wants us to see. So here in verse 12, right after John calls us to love the brethren, to love each other, he says in verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his, Abel's deeds were, I'm sorry, Cain's deeds were evil and his brother's were righteous. Now, I, I'm going to try not to take for granted that we all know this story, but we probably do. Cain is the elder brother, the son of Adam and Eve. Abel is the younger brother. Cain tended the crops while Abel tended the livestock. One day, each of the brothers brings their offering to the Lord. Cain, the fruit of the ground. Abel, the fruit of his livestock. And the Lord has regard for Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And Cain was very angry. So he rose up against Abel out in the field and killed him. Now, John tells us something directly that we don't see quite as clearly in the original Genesis account. We already know, of course, that the act of murder is evil. But John also answers the question, why? did Cain commit murder? And he tells us it's because his deeds were evil while Abel's were righteous. Why did God accept Abel's offering and he did not regard Cain's? Because Abel was righteous before God. Hebrews tells us that Abel presented his offering by faith. And Cain did not. He was not righteous. And that's why he hated his brother and killed him. Now, it's curious to me, of all the, of all the accounts in the Bible John could have used here, 
to make his point, he chooses Cain. Why is that? Well, y'all remember John's initial point in this scripture? The message we heard from the beginning is to love one another, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Unlike Cain, he says, who killed his own brother. And so Cain is serving as the poster child here for this evil contrast that John paints for us. But we need to be careful not to, you know, y'all, you may have grown up in an environment like this if you went to Sunday school as a kid where everything was always tied up into just a simple moral lesson. Don't be like Cain. And that's what we walk away with. Y'all, we can't make that mistake here today. That's certainly not John's point. He's not simply saying, don't be like Cain. We're meant to see the deeper roots of where Cain's murderous hatred came from in the first place. Y'all, Cain killed Abel because he hated him. That's obvious. But why? John tells us it's because Abel was righteous and Cain was evil. Cain resented his brother's goodness. Why? Because, John tells us, Cain was of the evil one. And this this stretches back into last week's message. If, If you were with us, if you weren't, you can find it on our website. Those who practice sin, John teaches, Those who practice sin are not of God, but they are of the devil. And Cain, again, is the poster child here that before Cain ever rose up and killed his brother, he had already made a prior stand against the Lord. His heart was calloused already. His deeds were evil. Note, the deed of murder is evil, of course. But John says he committed murder because his deeds were evil. He already stood against God and that and murder was simply the fruit of his heart. And so now John wants to work out some implications for us here. Understanding that hatred comes from a stance, a posture that's against God before it's ever against our brother or sister. We stand in wrong relationship with the Lord just as Cain did. Now look at verse 13. Here's the application for us. And it's both outward and inward. Verse 13, he says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Do not be surprised, John says, if the world hates you in the way that Cain hated Abel. And I think we're meant to see a connection here that just as Cain resented the goodness and righteousness of his brother, so the world, that is those who stand against God, will resent righteousness in God's people. Y'all, some people are attracted to righteousness. Others are repelled by it. And that's John's warning here, is if the world stands against God, it's going to stand against God's children as well. But to be a Christian, John says, is to be of a different nature. We once were of this world, but no longer. By God's grace, we are not what we were. We know, verse 14 says, that we have passed out of death 
and into life. Now that's a statement of salvation. We have been rescued by Jesus. Out of, Paul says in Colossians, we've been rescued out of the domain of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We have been transferred out of darkness and into light that we may walk in the light. And so John says the evidence of that passing out of death and into life, the evidence of salvation is what? Verse 14. Because we love the brethren, we know that we've passed from one to the next. And all of this serves John's larger point. Christian love, y'all, is not the same as every other kind of love. Christian love is of a special and new category. And I'd say this, Christian love is itself an act of righteousness, which is created by God in the heart of those who belong to Him. Y'all, Christian love is not just a feeling. Y'all, think about this. If we were all as loving as we all could be already, which is what a lot of people think. I'm, I'm a very loving person. I love everybody. If that were really true, then certainly the Bible would not command it. There'd be no need. It's, it's redundant. But what John is telling us here, what Jesus preached, what the Scripture commands is a kind of love that comes from God. Therefore, love, as the Bible defines it, is an act of righteousness. It's something that God must produce in our hearts. And so this is what we might call the fruit of Christian love. It's the outward way that we treat each other, that we speak, that we serve, that we care. We love the brethren. And this only comes from a deeper posture. Whereas Cain stood against God, and the outcome was hatred and murder. The Christian belongs to God. And the outcome is the good fruit of love and kindness. And so y'all, I want us to, to put these pieces together. No, I don't. Y'all, I, I turned to my last page. We got, we got more sermon to preach. That's rare, by the way. Thought y'all were getting out of here early. Making my last point. All right, forgive me. I should number my pages. Y'all, this is why John says, he who loves his brother has been born of God. He is passed out of death and into life. It's the fruit that reveals the root. All right? It's a very Baptisty thing to say, y'all, okay? I don't, I don't do a lot of those, but let's you tweet it if, you, if you're so inclined. The fruit reveals the root. The evidence of genuine faith is genuine love. This is why the application today is not, well, don't be like Cain. No, y'all, that's not the bar. Here's the application. Look at verse 16 now. Oh my goodness, verse 16. We know love by this, that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What is the root of Christian love? Where does it come from? How do we define it? It's right here. We know love by this, that Jesus laid down His life for us. Now, here's the contrast, and y'all, I want to make a special appeal to us here, that the opposite of Cain, in this case, is not Kyle. Kyle, don't be like Cain, right? The opposite of Cain, the true opposite, in terms of the poster child here, is Jesus. 
if Cain is the poster child of hate and resentment and murder, who is the poster child of genuine love and life? Y'all, let's, let's recall this. Cain resented his brother and took his life from him. Jesus loved his enemies and gave his life for us. I want to say that again. Evil Cain resented his brother and took his life from him. Righteous Jesus loves his enemies and gives his own life for us. It's the most supreme and unthinkable act of love the world is ever going to know. It's divine love in its purest form in action. The Son of God giving his own life for you and me. Sacrificing himself at infinite cost, so that He might save us and bring us to God. And y'all, so this is, a, this is a love that's endlessly self-giving. It's not self-interested, not self-seeking or serving, but giving. This is a love, Lord, y'all, that, we, that we, haven't just, we haven't just admired or you know, you know, we don't just talk about it, we've actually received it. The amazing grace of God is that the love of Jesus Christ is not something we're just told to try to imitate. It's something we actually experience for ourselves. He's loved you. And He gave Himself for you. So that now, it's not just the imitation of love. It's the radiation. It's a love you, you actually have at work in your life by faith, and it now shows itself in the way that we treat one another. And that's the second half of verse 16 having known the self-sacrificing love of Jesus for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And that means that we're called to exhibit the same quality of love one to another. A love that's radically self-giving, that's humble, it's tender-hearted, and it's kind. It's fixated on the good of others and not centered on what's best for me. And y'all, that's one of the ways that love is different in the Christian understanding. Love, according to the Apostle Paul, uh, that corresponds to humility, he says it in Philippians 2, he says we consider others more important than ourselves. And so I think about myself right here. I consider myself a very loving person. But here's a good test, y'all. If I were to actually hold up my inner thoughts and my words and my behaviors, if I hold them up to the light of the love of Christ, what I'm, if I'm honest with myself, what I'm going to realize is that my own conception of love doesn't shine nearly as brightly as His does. My love is so often fickle. It's so often self-serving. My love is easily swayed. In other words, the love in my life, the fruit, doesn't always reflect the root of God's love and God's grace in me. And if you're, if you're honest with yourself, you can attest to the same. Y'all, none of us is as loving as we could be or ought to be. We're certainly not as loving toward others as Christ has been to us. That's why the command is in here. And so if we're still not very sure about this, if I still tend to think that I, I'm better off, maybe, than everybody else, then um, John gives us a very helpful test case and challenge here. And y'all, there's a, sometimes the rubber meets the road in the Scripture, and it doesn't require a whole lot of preaching. So when, when 
John tries to remove the ambiguity of love. Oh, the I love everybody kind of love. Y'all, look at the hard evidence here that he presents to us in verses 17 and 18. Put yourself to the test. He says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. John Calvin called this the common duty of love that flows from the highest spring. Y'all, if God's love really does abide in us, the fruit will be evident, tangible, of course, the opposite is also true. John states it negatively. He says, if your brother, your fellow Christian brother or sister is in need and you have the ability to help, but instead you close your heart against him, John's question is very stark. What evidence then is there of God's love in your heart? Where is the fruit in that case? Y'all, since we've been on the topic of Cain today, there is, if you're familiar with that account, there's a very chilling verse of Scripture related to Cain's murder of Abel. There in Genesis 4, you don't need to turn there, but right after the deed has been done, God comes to Cain and asks, where is your brother Abel? And Cain replies, am I my brother's keeper? Which is to say, God, why are you asking me? I'm not responsible for him. Now perhaps that is reflected here in John's warning to us. When I see my brother in need, my brother, do I close my heart against him? Do I say to myself, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for him? Y'all, there's a necessary sting, I hope, in that question. Because John is well aware of the human tendency we all have to think ourselves better than we are. To think we're more loving than we actually are. It's there in verse 18. He says, let us not love with word or with tongue. Don't talk a game about love. Let us love in deed and truth. Let it be tangible. Let it be specific. Let it be personal. Let it be eye to eye. Life on life. Hand in hand. That's how love acts. Or John says, it may not be love at all. It may be something else. Y'all, if you're a Broadway fan, you know the, the play, My Fair Lady. Eliza Doolittle, the, the star of the play, she's been kind of, she's being courted throughout the play by a man named Freddie, but he's been very hands-off. He's, he's sung some songs and he's proclaimed his love for her, but he hasn't really done much to show that love. And so finally, Eliza gets fed up with all of Freddie's passivity, and she sings a whole song about it. Stop telling me how much you love me and show me, she says. And so the quote from the song, she says, Sing me no song, read me no rhyme, don't waste my time, show me. And that's John's compulsion here, his exhortation for the church. We can talk about love, and we do. We talk a real good game, I do. John says, show me. Show your brother, your sister, what love looks like in action. 
because that's the only way they're going to know. That's the only way the, the world will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, by your love for one another. And so I want, to, I want to tie these threads together here as we close. We always, always focus our heart and our minds on the gospel as of first importance, y'all. And so let's add, before we talk about ourselves again, let's ask this question of God. Y'all, does God truly love us? Yes, that's the answer. The answer is yes. How do we know? The demonstration of God's love is in the sending of His Son for us. We know love by this, that Jesus laid down His life for us. God's love is real, it's tangible, it's touchable, and it's costly. It was real blood shed on the cross. And so if John says now, if the love of God is in us, if that kind of love has really come to dwell in our hearts, then we will love one another and we'll love each other in deed and in truth. Real, tangible, costly, touchable love. There's something I hope we notice in these verses and I hope we take it to heart and we are closing for real this time. We might expect John to tell us that in response to God's love for us, the command should be, to love God. And of course, that command is there in the Bible. We should love God in return. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. That's true. But that's not John's prerogative here in this letter. At every turn, when John tells us how great God's love for us is, what God's love has done for us, the immediate application John makes is that we also love the brethren, he says. In light of God's love for us, it's assumed that we'll love God in return. The command, though, is to love one another. We've already seen it in this Scripture now. Look, Jesus laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. God has brought us from death into life, therefore we love the brethren. God's love abides in us, John says, therefore we love one another. What this means is, y'all, God's love for you does not terminate on you. You and I are not vacuums. We are radiators. A vacuum is something that receives but never gives back. A radiator is something that shines outward from what is in. To receive God's love is to be transformed. So that more and more we begin to love like God has loved us. We take on His heart in how we treat one another. Or we could just simply quote Jesus again on this. Jesus said, As I have loved you, so you also love one another. Because by this, the world will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Having received the great love of Christ, we now get to serve as the radiators, the light to the world, and how we love one another. What a divine privilege that is. Let's pray and ask God to make it so. Father, we are, I pray this, this morning we would be sobered and humbled, starting with me. Yes, I am a loving person. I love all sorts of people. But Lord, I pray that I'd be honest enough 
to look at Jesus and recognize the difference. That we all would this morning. That Your divine Son came to love His enemies. Not just His family and friends. Jesus came to love those who could not and never would pay Him back or love Him in return. Jesus came to die for those who drove the nails into His hands and feet. Jesus' love, Father, I hope we see it, it's of a different nature. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would, You'd open our eyes to see this. That, Lord, because we've trusted Him, we now possess this nature. Lord, we, we really are different. We're new. And in our own very imperfect ways, Lord, we, we, we know that we fall short, Lord, and yet we're called into something greater, Lord. Not a love that, that secretly holds on to my own self interests and desires, Lord, but a love that really is um, an outpouring. Um, I, I, that I really would see others and value them as more valuable, more important than me. That, Lord, we would desire the good of one another, Lord, without so much concern for what we might get out of it. Because that's what love is, Lord, that you sent your Son to save us not for any good thing we might do for you in return. But Lord, because of the outpouring of your great love, we now are your children. I pray, Lord, that, that um, Father, where we see ourselves falling short, where we see in ourselves, Lord, a, a, a fickle, kind of half-hearted love, Lord, that we will be drawn more and more this morning to Jesus Christ. He is the root. He is the source of this love. We must abide in Him, Lord, if we are to, to be like Him. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not look deeper into ourselves this morning in hopes that we can muster this up, but that we will look to Jesus Christ and that we will ask of You, Father, the grace to be the kind of people, outwardly and tangibly, that you've called us to be. Lord, it is by grace that we are saved. Not by our love for you, but by your love for us. But Lord, let it be a transforming love. Let it be something, Lord, that makes us more and more like Jesus. Here inside these walls, one to another, Lord, let, let it be the unique love that, that a brother and a sister in Christ can share so that the whole world might marvel at this divine thing, Father, you're doing among us. That there might be no other explanation but that God is changing us. Father, we, we pray for this kind of love, Lord. Even just one step in this direction today. today. Let it be so, please, in Christ's name. Amen.